Welcome to Rants About Humanity, a podcast where we interview guest experts with passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Raw, unfiltered, thought-provoking perspectives with no censorship. With your host, Philip Van Houta. Welcome everyone on the Rants About Humanity podcast. Today I have Michael Witkoff as a guest. Michael is the best-selling author of On the Masons and Their Lies, as well as a published poet. He is a Jewish convert to Orthodox Christianity and runs an internet ministry under his Benedictine title, Brother Augustine. Thanks so much for joining on the podcast. Do you think we'll be able to publish it on YouTube, you think? or Depends. We'll see. We'll see what gets said. Did you have a lot of problems with censorship and you have to mince your words when you post stuff on YouTube, when you talk about masonry and stuff, or is this stuff okay to talk about? I've had two videos taken down from YouTube. The first one was with an author by the name of James Perloff, who is mm-hmm. another, at least partially Jewish convert to Orthodox Christianity. He wrote, he's been writing uh, what you might call red pill or truther books for decades. Truth is a Lonely Warrior is, a, is probably his most well-known book. We were talking about the pandemic and the vaccines and whatnot. And so Mm -hmm. they didn't like that. They took it down right away. And the other one that got taken down was I made a video of myself and my friends burning all of my old Freemason stuff. And then I set it to music. I used uh, the the Striper song to hell with the devil playing over it. And it immediately got taken down for copyright violation, even though I still maintain that if they had asked the singer of Striper, he would have been happy to let me use that song for that video. Other than that, I haven't had problems with censorship, but I also, you know, I don't fed post as it's called or promote violence or any of the things that they're looking for. And my channel is still pretty small, so I don't think I'm even on their radar yet for censorship. Were you reading about masonry just out of curiosity or were you seeing the potential power of it, of giving into it that you just then decided to burn it? Oh, no, I was a Freemason for years. I, Ah. I was an officer in four different groups when I left and decided to be a Christian instead. And so I realized that all that stuff was not compatible with my new path. And so I threw a ton of it away. I gave a bunch of my cult books to a Mason friend at the time that I thought might like it because I I didn't want it in my house anymore. You know, I had all kinds of occult things and crystals and sigils and things in my house. So I just got rid of all of it eventually. And that was kind of the last of the stuff, like burning my old aprons. My robe, I think, was burned from one of the... uh, Groups that I was in towards the end there, a Rosicrucian group within Masonry, you know, maybe maybe for the listeners, pamphlets and stuff. You can introduce them a bit to Freemasonry and what is it actually and where does it come from? I know we could get like hours into it. I got introduced to it by Bill Cooper. Do you know who it was? He had the hour of the, that starts with like the how The hour stuff. of the time. Exactly, exactly. Yes, Behold and the then, pale horse, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Beyond the pale horse. And you had... Mm-hmm. Um, what was the book of that Freemason of the so many degrees? Oh, if he wrote a book about it, I never saw it. Uh, I, will, I will get back to it. But where do you start with masonry? Do you actually go back to ancient uh, Babylon, to, to Egypt? Or how far is this going back? What is the origin, actually? So that's a great question. And most Masons spend a, a lot of time, sometimes their whole lives, just trying to find the answer to that question. Because... There's what they tell you they are, where they tell you, so they tell you that they are doing a representation of King Solomon's temple, basically. So this whole thing, this is a deeper topic, but it's an inversion of the Orthodox Christian church. So it's like that, but upside down, they have their own sacraments because our churches each, they are set after Solomon's temple, which was 
itself set after the tabernacle that Moses was shown in a, in a vision and then built in the wilderness. They will tell you that it started officially in, I want to say 1725, if I'm remembering correctly. It's been a long time since I looked into the origins of masonry and whatnot. The United Grand Lodge of England, I want to say started 17, either 1717. Yeah, I think it was 1717 mm. or 1725, one of those two. And then over time, it just became kind of more occult actually pretty quickly because a lot of members of secret societies like the Bavarian Illuminati, for example, had been disbanded by them. The government had made it illegal to be a member of the Bavarian mm. Illuminati. So that lodge, those lodges shut down. So the guys there, from what we can tell, started infiltrating Masonic lodges instead, introducing their symbolism and their ideology and their philosophy so that they could still meet with each other, but under the cover of a group that it was legal to be part of, if that makes sense. Because you had witches, right? And witchcraft in the Middle Ages. But then there was nothing like a masonry or people getting together in some kind of occult form. Well, there were certainly mystery schools is what they would have probably called in, in Babylon and Egypt and Greece. There's like a Mithraic cult. There was a cult of Demeter in Greece, the mysteries of Eleusis. There was all kinds of things like that. And masonry is kind of a buffet of those things, I would say, where it kind of blends all these different ancient mystery schools together. And so that sounds or sounded very cool. You know, when I was in my 20s, I was like, ooh, ancient secret knowledge, ancient wisdom and all this stuff. But then as I became more and more Christian, you know, started reading the Bible more then I became a Protestant, eventually became Orthodox. The deeper I got into it, the more I realized that you can't be part of both. And a lot of guys are part of both because they don't realize how incompatible they are. There's no meaningful overlap between the ancient mystery schools and Christianity in a theological sense. Now, some of the moral teachings might be similar, like don't lie, don't steal, don't kill, things of that, of that nature, which they at least preach in masonry. They preach upright behavior. Whether everyone there is actually following that code of conduct is a different question, but that's true for anything, right? You, even, even in Christian churches, you find people not following the morality. I mean, none of us follows it perfectly, of course, but not everyone's trying. Most people, I would say, are trying, though. But masonry, at least on the surface, does teach you know, upright behavior, because a lot of the old pagans did at least preach morality. Yeah, maybe you can make it make it, make a distinction between occultism and paganism. Mm. Is there a difference between it? Paganism, I would describe as religions largely from the ancient world that were animistic in a certain sense. Some were, meaning they thought every object had a spirit of its own. Some pagan groups were materialists. They didn't believe in a spirit world at all. Some pagan groups would do occult practices. For example, they would play with astrology and spirits of whatever kind, which is really just demons, if you understand what's happening. And they would try to gain wisdom or knowledge from these demons, or they would yoke themselves to it to gain more power. I mean, it's, it's soul-destroying stuff, but this was very, very common in the ancient world. And it's still somewhat common with the New Age movement in our world, which is very poorly named because it's just very ancient things that they're calling new. So it's just a bit of an inversion. I wouldn't say every pagan religion is necessarily involved in the occult. That really started with... so. Platonism, the school of Plato in ancient mm -hmm. Athens, right? That was a pagan religion. Neoplatonism, which branched off of Plato later, itself then branched out into different directions, some of which were really, really focused on sorcery. Like I think Iamblichus, if I'm remembering correctly, his direction of Neoplatonism was very involved in ritual magic. And Plotinus, uh, Plotinus some other or ones, something, right? Plotinus or something. Yeah, yeah. And I think Plotinus was more philosophical than magical, if that makes sense. Like I don't think. I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think Plotinus was, you know, trying to align his rituals with certain star patterns the way that Iamblichus and, and the offshoots of his school were. And so in the modern world, you have Freemasonry, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, all these different groups that are kind of inheritors of that 
lineage, so to speak. Freemason. Hmm. Why is it called Freemason? Oh, you know what? They explain this to you in the rituals, but it's been so long, I don't quite remember what the explanation was. Uh, Mason is because you're supposed to be a builder, building this perfect temple of humanity. Free, it comes from free and accepted Mason is, is the actual like longer version of it. But I don't remember what precisely the word free referred to in that sense. Is this inherently, I mean, you could look at it from Christianity and you call it inherently evil. Is Freemasonry inherently linked to Satanism, evil, dark devil worship? Or is that not always the case? It's not always the case. I would say it depends more on the individual Freemason. However, so Satanism, I would usually describe as like a worship of the devil, right? Luciferianism, however, I would describe as an exaltation of the self. And I would say that Masonry is more Luciferian than overtly Satanic. Even though different people might use these terms differently, that's kind of how I conceive of it. Anything that kind of seeks to glorify you, I think I would describe as Luciferian, because that's really what the original sin of Satan was, right? Of Lucifer was exaltation of himself, right? He was God's most beautiful angel. Mm -hmm. And he got so high on his own supply, so to speak, so high on his own pride that he wanted to exalt himself above God. And so that's what a lot of, if not all occultists are, are doing. Maybe, maybe they all are, but some are aware of it, some are not. They're trying to make themselves God, or they think that they're the God of the world. Did he want it, if, if, if you go to the Miltonian, uh, John Milton version of the fall of uh, Lucifer, the light bringing, mm -hmm. which is also an mm -hmm. interesting term, light, we associate light mm -hmm. with good. Usually, did he wanted yeah. to put himself above God, or did he just want to take revenge because he felt better than the other angels and he didn't feel appreciated enough and rewarded enough? So John Milton, you're talking about Paradise Lost, right? Yeah. So it's fascinating. I would consider it Bible fan fiction. Traditionally, <laughs> it, you know, the angel wanted to be worshipped as if he was the creator. So putting himself on God's throne. And if you look at stuff like Kabbalah, which masonry is really all based in, if you look at the actual theology or philosophy of Kabbalah, their angel Metatron that they think is the real Messiah, if you read the description, their own descriptions, it's very obviously exactly what Christianity describes Lucifer as. It ends up being a worship of this bad angel instead of the true God. So it's idolatry from the practitioner's point of view, and it's trying to take usurp God's throne from the bad angel's point of view. And why is it called a light bringer? Because I want to find maybe God as the light bringer or, you know, shining the exactly. light of the Holy Spirit. Right. Exactly. God is the true light bringer. But as the Bible warns us, the, Satan appears as an angel of light. So he calls himself the light bringer to trick people into thinking that his power is the one you should be going after. He's the one you should be worshiping. I mean, Christ describes himself as a light bringer at a certain point in the scriptures. Because I want to say it was C.S. Lewis that said this or, or G.K. Chesterton. Demons are, cannot create. They can only corrupt. So all they can do is take something godly or good or holy or wise and then twist it upside down and make it mean something else. This is something I realized about evil and everything that's going on right now. Evil has no inherent power. It always has to steal energy from something else. That is like when you're good, you're in yourself, you have power, you have your fuel enough, light enough, truth enough, but they always have to get attention and steal and drain attention from something to, to keep the evil alive because by itself it dies yeah. out. That's right. I mean, Orthodox Christianity preaches that e evil has no ontological existence, meaning it doesn't have a nature. There's no such thing as an evil nature because we believe God created everything good. So what evil is, is taking something good and twisting it. Or for example, if we have a 
we all have this kind of inborn desire for a union, right? We want to be one with something. Now, when that inner power of yours is in proper alignment, what you want to be one with is God. And if you're married, your spouse as well. However, we can still take that, that uh, desire for union, which is inherently good, and then go around and fornicate with people, right? So we're taking that desire for union, which is what that comes from, but turning it into something else and corrupting it. But we wouldn't say that there's any actual existence to evil because God created everything good. Evil is just people taking something good or angels taking something good and then corrupting it and putting it to some lower, baser, kind of more animalistic impulse is how we would usually conceive of, of that question. And that's a really good question, by the way. Yeah, sometimes you have, you have like, you know, happiness or smile or love is the only gift that you can give to people and you don't lose mm. anything of it yourself, right? That's <laughs> it true. Multiplies. That's very true. You can't do that yeah. with like evil because it takes, right? It reduces. Exactly. Because evil is selfish. It's not giving, it's taking. Something I find interesting with Satanism is this inversion that you see all the time. And this makes it so seductive because they have this cloak of virtue, this cloak of, you know, the Always. content that seems more mm -hmm. appealing, but then it does mm -hmm. the exact opposite. That's right. That's right. Look at Bill Gates and Jeff Epstein and some of the world's worst human beings give the most money to charity, right? So they present themselves as philanthropists. They present themselves as helpers of humanity, lovers of the good, right? They're just here to help make the world a better place. Those are the, some of the worst people present themselves as philanthropists. I mean, this comes back to Kabbalah and occultism too. They're trying to, some of the, some of the really bad people, I'm not saying everyone that I just named is because I don't know the in, intimate details of their lives, but a lot of people will do the most despicable crimes on earth and then give a ton of money because then they feel like they're fulfilling both their light and dark aspects, this kind of Jungian nonsense about the shadow self and how you have to integrate it into the light or whatever. I mean, it's, it's all just a justification for evil. It's Satan lying to people, telling them, this will make you more complete if you also do, if you do both evil things and good things. But it's a lie, right? When we do evil things, we're corrupting ourselves and the people we interact with. But there's a lot of that going on. And I mean, if you look at the human trafficking that goes on the world, a lot of it comes I through anti-human trafficking it's, it's interesting because I see, my, see myself a bit as a Jungian. My, my, my stuff is a bit like challenging. Isn't goodness also partly recognizing the evil in yourself? And then just as like, okay, that's going back to Judaism, like Israel wrestling with God, wrestling with that mm. evil and then choosing good as a voluntary choice. Isn't that shadow, that negative side, that proclivity to evil something we we recognize because then we can choose to be good we can yes and we should there's certainly a lot of sin and corruption in our hearts i mean our hearts are evil and corrupt and wicked again not because they were inherently made that way but because of the fall of mankind and our temptation towards sin and whatnot however you have to also keep in mind that young was a fornicator a drug user a practitioner of the occult in communion with demons you know he wrote that red book that was all about i don't think he was ever supposed to see the light of day it was all about his communing with demons. So he can, the people talking about integrating the shadow, what they often mean is engaging in the dark stuff. So even if the words that you're using, I would agree with, in practice, it seems like the people that go with that paradigm are also engaging in evil a lot of the time. And of course, I'm defining evil from the Christian perspective of, of the sins that we're not supposed to be doing because they're bad for us, bad for our hearts, minds, and souls. Um, and I know a lot of the people that are into this stuff, you know, this dualist kind of imagery and philosophy. You see, Freemasonry has the checkered floorboard, uh, the black and the white, the dark, darkness and the light. 
I, it seems that a lot of people who are into this stuff will try to walk both paths at once to try and, and attain some sort of balance. But for a Christian, we're not going for balance. We're going for as much good as we can, right? Knowing that we'll never you know, stand up to the purity of God in any way. We're never going to be quite like Christ, at least certainly not while we're still in the flesh. And we're never going to be ontologically divine either, even afterwards. But that's a bit of a deeper topic. So even if the words that it's, and this is related to the Satanism thing, right? About how Satan appears as an angel of light. So even if someone is talking from this idea of recognizing the evil in you and overcoming it and choosing good, I agree with that. But I don't see that always being the practice. I mean, mm. if you're one of them, that's, uh, that's, I congratulate you. That's awesome. But I've also seen a lot of the opposite. You see integrating, yes, whatever you focus on, you become. So if you focus on evil or give into it or practice it, then you can claim that you understand it, but you become more of it. So your stance is more towards repentance. Yes. So for example, if you recognize in yourself that you have some desire to steal, let's say, you can repent of that, right? And not do the action and go for the light. Or you can steal something, but then you know give some money to charity so that you're doing both the darkness and the light. That's the part that corrupts you, the second one. Whereas the first one, I mean, especially for the Orthodox, we call ourselves sinners all day, every day, because we all are. And we're the more aware of that we are, the closer to God that we will get because what he recognizes and rewards in us, if you will, with grace and mercy is our own sinfulness and our unworthiness. But we're certainly not going to act on our sins just to try and integrate them or overcome them by engaging them. And then there are also some groups, some occult-oriented groups that think that their salvation comes from sin. There are some Gnostic groups like the um, Carpocrateans hmm. believed that they could separate their soul from their body and thereby achieve gnosis or enlightenment. And the way to do that was by doing all the worst possible things with their body so their soul would like free itself from that, which is, of course, just a lie from the devil to, to ruin your soul. The separation of soul and body while still alive which is not the uh, correct view from our perspective, of course. From our point of view, the separation of the soul from the body is what we call death. And the separation of the soul from God is what we call spiritual death. We don't believe that by, we don't believe that what we do with our body doesn't affect our soul or vice versa. We see ourselves as one unit, one holistic being. Like you can't go live in evil and then also have a healthy soul. It's just not possible. I will probably trigger you a bit with my interpretation sometimes, and I'm still in, sure, in my sure. journey of finding things, but that's always how I look at like conversations. And I yeah, think there's course. sometimes a, a misinterpretation about gnosis, what it actually means. For me, it's like self-knowledge or big S self-like knowledge. So, I mean, some people see gnosis as uh, combined with like mystery. Some people see it as like evil. What, what is gnosis actually? And what is your opinion of the Gnostic Gospels? that were discovered mm. in Nahamadi in the 20th century, mm. the Gospel of uh, Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, and those things, which are almost more spiritual or symbolic interpretation mm. of the, the Bible? That's a good question. So I think that, like everything else, the word gnosis has a proper meaning than a meaning that's kind of been corrupted. So ultimately, I would describe gnosis as self-knowledge. I would agree with you so far on the, as far as what that term means. There's certainly a Christian sense of gnosis with a small g. One of our, probably our peak philosopher, actually, a guy called St. Maximus the Confessor, whose writings are so, sometimes so dense and complicated that you just put the book down because you don't understand what he's talking about anymore, at least for me. I I don't have a philosophy background. So for him, gnosis would be, like you're saying, recognition of the self. 
But for us, that means recognizing we're created in the image and likeness of God, but not that we're God ourselves. We're in the image and likeness of God, recognizing our sinfulness, recognizing how far from God we are, which he shows you over time. If God showed you how corrupt your heart is all at once, he would collapse into non-existence. It would overwhelm you. So he shows us a little bit of our evil at a time, just enough that we can repent from and talk to our confessor about and get healing from, from the sacraments and prayer and fasting and intercession of the saints and all that stuff. But if you're talking about the Gnostic Gospels, this would be another example to me, from our point of view anyway, of taking something that's inherently good and then making it mean something else. So there's a big difference between the way Protestants and Orthodox approach the scriptures, right? We both agree they're the infallible word of God. Protestants tend not to know the history of how the Bible came into being or kind of understand how the ancient church worked. Whereas for the Orthodox, we spend a lot of time talking about this, studying this. So when we look at the history in the Christian church of how the, God, how the uh, Bible came into being, like how they picked which letters to include, which books to include, we're talking about centuries of debate, centuries, hundreds of years. Yeah, and the Council of Nicaea, Nicaea was, a, was a big one amongst many, right? Amongst many, that was one of seven ecumenical councils or the biggest councils, yeah. I mean, the book of Revelation at the very end of the New Testament wasn't technically canonical scripture, I think, for seven or 800 years even after the time it was written. It was debated back and forth between the wisest, holiest people in the church. Some people wanted to include it. Some people did not. It ended up being part of the canon. So when we talk about like Gnostic gospels, Nag Hammadi, this kind of stuff, these are things that were talked about a lot back then, and that the church universally said, this is not representative of what the apostles taught. And we have the writings of the apostles' students, at least some of them, St. Ignatius of Antioch, St. Polycarp of Smyrna. For example, we have the Didache, which was the, the Didache community wrote down what the apostles taught when they were there. So we have a pretty good record of what was taught and what was not taught. And if you look through all of this stuff, just the existence of which alone is a revelation to many people. You know, most Protestants have never heard of these things. I certainly hadn't as a Protestant. And then when I did, I became Orthodox instead. What you see is a very clear line drawn between this is what the apostles taught and this is something new. This is not something we got from Christ. And so the church accepts this column and just totally reject this. And so I was really into the Gnostic Gospels when I was a Gnostic myself and I was into the occult. I thought, wow, look at the truth of the true mm-hmm. Christian message that the evil church repressed and kept out of the Bible. Like I very much had that mentality until I studied more deeply the history of how the Bible came about and how they decided what to include and what not to include. And so if you go with what the earliest Christians taught, as far as every record we have, they universally would disagree with those kinds of findings, which I think are from an ancient Gnostic group. I just don't think that they're representative of what Christ taught to the apostles and what the apostles then taught to their disciples. This is also what we see right now that after the last two years, that a lot of things that we, what we think about, uh, it's a prescribed narrative. It's the narrow bandwidth of what's acceptable to debate. So when we see the, well, that's the certainly true. institutionalization of, of the church, that's something completely mm. different. I mean, you go back to the scriptures, right? Well, I, I would say that the scriptures support an institutional church. Like the Paul of mm-hmm. and Peter version of the uh, church. Mm-hmm. Because a lot yeah. of people seem to not have such an issue sometimes with religion, but they seem to have... I mean, you have some people who say like, yeah, the church is kind of that hierarchical structure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think 
this is going to be so heretical what I'm going to say. Some some people have this view of Jesus who is more like communistic or we're all one, mm-hmm. you know, and there's no hierarchy and we're all, I mean, that's that's also a big debate. Alan Watts had a different interpretation of it, like that we are all the mm-hmm. son of God instead of Jesus saying, I am the son of God. I certainly heard that perspective. Which perception do you have? The, the son of God or a son of God? The son of God. So Christ is the only begotten son of God. Now we, we mm-hmm. become sons of God by adoption, by grace, but Christ is ontologically the son of God, meaning he is God. He is divine. His divinity derives from the father's divinity because he is the only begotten son. And so we want to restore the image and likeness of Christ in our own lives as much as possible, of course, but we never become what Christ is by nature. So there's a really good ancient phrase to answer that exact issue you brought up. I think it was St. Athanasius the Great who said this, who said, we become by grace what Christ is by nature, which means that we become Christ-like, we become sons of God, but not capital S, son of God, because we ourselves never become God. We can become God-like, little gods, maybe with a little g, by deriving from Christ's divinity, by becoming one with him through a process we call theosis. This is the heart of Eastern Orthodox mysticism, is this process of becoming God by grace, but we never become the only begotten son of God that existed before time and space were created, if that makes sense. Like we're still created beings and he's still not a created being, but we, we can become adopted children of God is how the Orthodox would answer that question. Well, to understand Orthodoxy, is this process more an active process? Is it more time kind of letting go? A kind of leap of faith to yeah, make would, because sometimes my interpretation of Protestantism and sorry for all the religious people listening to this and I'm butchering interpretations is like sometimes I feel Protestantism say like are you a good Christian or Catholic yes because I believe in Christ it's almost mm-hmm. like me saying are you a good person yeah, yeah I believe in my friend Jacob he's a good person <laughs> like okay but are mm-hmm. you a good person are you practicing right. being a good person are you actually living it yeah yeah I totally believe right. in Jacob who's a good person I mean, sorry, Protestants, I'm bushing maybe here, but that is sometimes no, I think that that's I, accurate yeah. view of what they believe. And then I'm also wondering, like, sometimes I think Orthodox is the most pure form. Is it an active form? Is rituals an important form or is it more like surrender and devotion? So it's not really possible to understand what Orthodoxy is from the outside. When you look at it and you see us kissing the icons, you know, the pictures of Christ mm-hmm. and the saints, you see us crossing ourselves and bowing down and taking communion. What it looks like from the outside is not what it is from inside living it, if that makes sense. And it's very hard to describe. I mean, our sacraments, our mysteries are bridges between heaven and earth that transform us on the deepest level if we are faithfully you know, engaging with them. And what, what Protestants believe changes depending on the person and the denomination, right? As of, as of right now, there are 40,000 different denominations of Protestantism, each of which is telling us that they're led by the same Holy Spirit, which doesn't make sense. God is not an author of confusion and division. Why would he create 40,000 different religions and tell them all it's the same thing? Obviously, that's not the case. So for the Orthodox, yes, we would absolutely say it's the pure, it's the church with a capital C, the apostolic church. We have all the records of you know, where the apostles went, they instituted as bishops after them. Every one of our priests can tell you what apostle their lineage of ordination comes from. So what you're describing is true of certain kinds of Protestants where they'll say, well, I'm not a good person, but I believe in God and therefore I'm saved, right? And there can be some, some truth to that. You know, it really depends on what the person means by it. For us, we would never describe ourselves as a good person or a good Christian. In fact, a priest that I had 
out in California before I moved, told me something that stuck with me for a long time. I just told my wife this, I think yesterday or two days ago. He said, never trust a monk who calls himself holy because our, our whole idea is that if we think of ourselves as virtuous or good, then we don't have the gnosis. We don't have the self-knowledge because the knowledge, if we did have self-knowledge, we would realize all the filth and selfishness and wickedness that's in our hearts. So anytime we catch ourselves thinking of ourselves, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. That's a sign of us being far from God. And we have to pray to him to show us the truth about ourselves and repent of our lack of self-awareness. And every time, at least for me, every time I think, okay, I've got kind of got a handle on this. Like, I think I'm making real progress. God will reveal another layer of darkness in my heart and show me just to keep me humble and on the correct path, how untrue that is. So we, as to whether it's a passive or active process, I would say, yes, it's both. So it does involve total surrender to God, which is really hard. You know, I don't know if any of us has done this perfectly, though we try and fail every day. All of us do. And it's active in that we seek healing for the things that God shows us when we're surrendering to him. So we go to the services, we take communion, we go to confession, we give to the poor, we give to charity, we tie to the church. So we don't have this separation of faith and works the way Protestants do. Because when they look at the scriptures and, and Paul is talking about it's not by works that we're saved, he's referring to the commandments of the Old Testament, right? He doesn't mean that our behavior is irrelevant, which is how a lot of Protestants interpret that. They'll see anything you do as a work and therefore anathema, right? But if you actually read the scriptures in their totality, there's long lists of behavior that will keep you out of the kingdom of heaven, right? Especially in Revelation, you know, fornicator, coward, adulterer, effeminate, thief, drunkard, like, if you're actively living in all these things unrepentantly, you don't have the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't matter if you say you believe in Christ because your belief is worthless. It has, it's, it, if your belief in Christ has no bearing on your character, if it's not transforming you, then it's not really a, a, a meaningful belief, right? It's just an intellectual thought that you have. Yes, I logically agree with the idea of Christ, but that's not what Christ is, right? That's not who he is. He's not an idea to be mentally assented to. He is a person that's meant to dwell in our heart. I think so this some is, Protestants are closer than others, I would say, to that this truth. Is, this is often also, yeah, the debate that uh, Jonathan uh, Paja also has with uh, Jordan Peterson, that Jordan Peterson is like, like Jonathan, and you can talk your opinion about it. He says like, yeah, but did you go to church? You have the social aspect. Do you do the jump, the loop, loop of faith? Do you devote yourself to it? And mm. Jordan Peterson is kind of like wishy-washy about it, you know? And he's yeah. like, you know, I act as if... <laughs> He existed, but just totally that sense. saying shows shows doubt, right? Shows that that that, yeah. that lack of which I get. I'm also a bit there, but it's like not a complete commitment and devotion to it, right? Like, how do you mm -hmm. look at the teachings of Jordan Peterson and his stance towards God, religion, Christianity? So I'm not a fan. However, I also recognize that he's helped a lot of people, and it's taken me a while to get to that place. I used to just be very, you know anti-Jordan Peterson. And I, I still don't think that... So here's how I think of it. I think if you're an atheist or a materialist with no conception of how the world works, he can be a useful step in the right direction. But I think that once you're already a Christian, I think it's just kind of moving backwards to think about his stuff. And so a lot of people have told me he was like a stepping stone towards the church for them. You know, but once you're there, why would you, why would you look back? I don't think of, of Peterson as a Christian. Me and Peugeot don't get along especially well. We've we've had a couple of tense conversations, let's say. Why? I'm I'm just curious in what's the area you disagree the most in or different interpretations. So I made a video called Is Jordan Peterson a Freemason? 
a couple mm-hmm. years ago. And then Jonathan Pajot made a response to that video, never saying my name or what channel he was attacking, basically telling me I didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't understand the symbolism. Uh, I disagree with him. I think he doesn't understand what, what he sees right in front of him. He, I think he's a wonderful iconographer. He's obviously an incredibly talented artist and a devout man, devout family man, which I respect and admire. I'm not an artist. I mean, I can barely draw a stick figure. I could never do what he does. But I, I don't think he understands how the occult stuff works. I don't think he's ever been part of it. So it's a different understanding of symbols to read about them and draw them or carve them than it is to actually use them in some operative magical way. So I, I think Jordan Peterson is oppressed demonically. I wouldn't say possessed necessarily, but I, I can see the affliction on him. And I don't think he's particularly honest in certain regards. One of my issues with Pajot from back in the day, this was probably three years ago, if I had to guess, I saw Peterson going down a dark path and I offered to reach out and help him, an offer that's still on the table if Pajot, if you're listening to this for some reason. And I told Peugeot, I said, you know, if Jordan doesn't stop what he's doing, things are going to go really badly for him and his life's going to spiral out of control. And he kind of blew me off like, you know, who am I? Some little no one on the internet, right? Compared to this giant pillar of knowledge of Jordan Peterson. And then exactly what I said was going to happen, happened. And he ended up a drug addict and seemed like he almost died. Like he did psychologically get a total total break in his mind, ended up in rehab and miserable. I still maintain that I could have helped prevent that. If Peugeot had put me in touch with Peterson at the time, I think I could have helped him because I saw a lot of stuff going on in his head that I think was happening when I was into the occult too. So I think I could have articulated that and communicated it to him and helped him out of it. But you know, things happened the way they did. I don't believe Jordan's story about how he got hooked on benzodiazepines. You know, I have a degree in psychology. I've been to rehab myself 13 years ago. I don't believe that his doctor octupled his dose overnight. I just don't buy that for a second. I don't think you would get kicked out of your field if you did something like that. That's not how psychiatric medicine works. I don't believe him that he didn't know that it would be addictive. Like Again, this is supposedly one of the smartest psychologists in the Western world just had no idea what benzodiazepines are. I don't buy it. I think there's something else to this story here. And I could be wrong. And if I'm wrong, Lord have mercy on me for bearing false witness. But from my perspective, there was more going on there than we were told. I mean, and I think my, that his collapse came from his occultism. That's my interpretation. No, of it's, it's it's fine to state as a statement, and I will disenfranchise some of my listeners because I used to, and I still admire some things of Jordan Peterson. I got a picture with him. I used to make videos about him. But there's some things that I realized, and listen, I can always be wrong. Like, you know, never trust a guy who's 100% or, or a woman who's 100% certain. But right. if you preach personal responsibility, I mean, yes, it's a struggle with life is difficult, but being mm-hmm. addicted to benzodiazepines or antidepressants, it's the opposite of personal responsibility. It's the opposite. Right. And speaking your truth despite consequences and studying Solzhenitsyn, who says like, as long as one man speaks his truth, you know, people will awaken. And then during this whole two years, you don't speak out, you don't see it. You can explain the gender wage gap on all the vectors, but you haven't looked mm-hmm. at the, the V research and a demographic distribution you know the demographic distribution of the wage gap by percentages and you haven't looked at the numbers and if the measures make sense you have interviews about climate change and and have uh look like no it's not the most pragmatic approach to solve this issue and then the last two years you didn't use a pragmatic approach in terms of resources and stuff like you studied totalitarianism for so long and then when it happens you don't see it you you, no, you he's, dislike no, he's communism 
just like communism and your whole house hangs full of communist paintings. I mean, this is sometimes the thing I think with, yes, it's good to understand evil, but you can also be consumed by it. And you can tell yourself that I just want to understand symbolism. I want to study Mircea Iliad and all those things, but whether you want to understand it, it consumes potentially a part of you. You know, that's a great example of when I was describing earlier, the Jungians that try and do the balance by engaging the darkness. I think that's exactly what Peterson's trying to do by having all this demonic paintings and, you know, communist leaders, iconography, for lack of a better word, on his house. I mean, there's, how do you justify that? You really can't. Um, and what you said about personal responsibility, I think you totally nailed it. I had the same thought. I thought, why are people taking advice from this guy on how to live a fulfilling life? when he's a miserable, broken drug addict? Like, at what point do you look at the character and results of the person in deciding whether to follow their teachings? So for me, I mean, Peterson might know a lot about mythology and whatnot, Mm. but obviously he hasn't figured out, you know, how to bring this together in any meaningful way in his life, or else he wouldn't be in the circumstances he's in. Now, interestingly enough, from what I hear, every member of his family is now a Christian except for him. I know his wife, can, I'm hearing rumors that his daughter is at least claiming to be a Christian now. You know, I, I can't say I follow her. I've never talked to her or watched a video she's made. I just kind of don't care. But that's what, I'm, that's what I'm told. I know that when he was in Russia getting treatment, I think his wife became Catholic. So he's kind of like the last holdout in his family now. And I don't know exactly what it is like that he won't make that final step into actually truly becoming Christian. I think it's a lot of pride probably because... I think Peterson, and again, this is just totally my own interpretation. I think he sees himself as the savior of the world. He wants to be the Messiah that fixes all I think the problems. I had the same you know? thing as you, and it was also confrontation. It was almost like the death of a father figure to realize there's there's false icons, literal false icons, yeah. and there's false icons. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, I still love and empathy towards him. I would love to sit down with him and have a talk with him, like what's going on and try to understand, you know, like I'm not going to completely judge him. But maybe he got consumed by his status, by the image of himself and that icon of himself. And he was not willing to lose it. And then in terms of like going from stage to stage speaking, yeah, I get it in terms of impact, but everybody is guilty of it. I'm also sinful. Everybody is a little bit of a hypocrite. I'm not going to ignore it. But in the end, you should practice some of your basic teachings. And if you just want to make impact by putting it all out there externally, but internally you lose yourself, like you're a hypocrite and then you want to face again like am i am i having beginner's mind am i being humble here or am i consumed by this admiration yeah now to be to be fair to him and to be empathetic a quality i'm trying to cultivate in my Mm -hmm. life it's a uphill battle i can't imagine the temptation to make himself an idol that he faces because you know i have a very small platform I'm mostly just an anonymous, I'm just a person, regular person. I have a day job and to pay the bills and I sometimes talk on camera. And, but even that, you know, as a platform grows, I feel the temptation to make myself into something special. Like, oh, aren't I a big shot? Who I got a hundred subs today, whatever. So I can't imagine what that feeling is like for him, you know, being a household name. I'm sure it's infinitely worse than, than what I have, than what I struggle with sometimes. And I also know how hard it is sometimes to bring yourself back into humility when you get some big boost of notoriety or, or internet fame or whatever. It's really hard. So for him to be constantly engaged in that, I'm sure it's brutally difficult. But as long as he's trying to make himself the Messiah, you know, then he can't accept the true one. You know, he has to dethrone himself, make himself smaller so that God can reign in his heart instead. And I think that's where his struggle lies in the crux of his struggle. Because if he accepts that someone else is the Messiah, then it can't be him. And I think that's probably the, the point of, of 
difficulty and the point of departure from Christianity for him. And you know, I pray for him all the time. I hope that someday he yeah, comes. Yeah, and this is this is the and it's interesting that I can have this talk with you because I know there's so many Peterson fanboys, and I've been there myself. But I would use this period, and I'm going through it myself because I also notice some potholes in what I'm saying, and that some things are, you know, a projection, and I don't do it myself. But if he truly values personal responsibility, he should ask himself, "What made myself sick? What consumed mm. me?" And not yeah. blame it on benzodiazepines or blame it on the wrong treatments. That is not taking personal responsibility. No. I would go inside and not say, I'm going to recover and get the fix. And then I'm going to do my world tour again. And now I healed. Right. This is what, what I would, would suggest. For. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the benzos thing, that was really the big red flag because the way that this actually works is a doctor would give you a tiny dose of it. And then over a couple of weeks, see how it works. And if it doesn't, they would give you a tiny up uptick in the dose, what's called titrating upwards. Like, because these things are so dangerous and have such bad side effects, they would never just go from half a milligram to four milligrams overnight. I mean, you could really destroy someone's life, obviously, doing that. And also here, what so he said- I don't know where he found he, this doctor he, either. Yeah, he woke up a bit so cold about what's going on because he took the- So you trust right? pharma. While you just had yeah. negative side, uh, side effects from taking the benzodiazepine. So it's like, oh my God, right? pharma cheated me. I had massive side effects. And then you totally trust pharma. I don't get this. Like, this is like schizophrenic to think this way. Yeah. And this would happen you, to me. Like, I had so much trust in it. Yet. I had so much trust in, in the medicine and the doctors. And I got so dependent. I almost lost my life. Whoa. You know, I'm having second thoughts about this. But then being so convinced again. Like mm -hmm. one hand, I trust the science, but the other hand, like I'm skeptical, I'm mystical, you know, and I have this uh, religious dimension. That's just something off for me here in terms of congruency also for me. I mean, for someone that, you know, claims to or presents himself as having all this deep insight into what's really going on, you know, how do you not look at what's happening with this mm -hmm. medication being mandated and all the people dying from it? How can you promote that? And having a platform that size and promoting that something so dangerous to so many people. I mean, the guy's got a Hollywood agent, right? He's got an ACA agent. Mm -hmm. So is he really a rebel against the establishment or is he a mouthpiece for them? I'm no longer convinced in either direction, but something's yeah. going on, it seems and, like. And you've written the foreword of uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's in his book, which by the way, leads me to another thought provoking thing to talk about, which is, I don't know if you read it, the other book by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. <laughs> about 400 about years together. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> which Jordan Peterson doesn't talk about, and it's about the no, he doesn't. Russian Revolution. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, we can talk about Russians without getting <laughs> censored, certainly. So we talk um, about Russians. <laughs> mm. Russians yes. with a, with a, a J in the beginning, yeah. Yes, the Russians with the unusual hats. So I'm ethnically a Russian with an unusual hat, even though I'm a uh, Christian by faith and, and religion. I haven't read 400 Years Together. I don't think it's in English yet, right? But I'm mm -hmm. very familiar with other writings on the same topic, let's say. And the fact that he deliberately deflects from that, like you saw when he was asked about it on stage, right? The clip. Mm -hmm. And then he wrote a whole article pathologizing people who have questions about the Russians, to me, that's just lying. Like, there's no way that he reads Dostoevsky and Solzhenitsyn and has no idea, you know, what any of these people are talking about. I just don't buy that. You know, every single one of these great thinkers that he says he respects all had the same opinion of the Russians with the unusual hats. 
So either he thinks he's smarter than them, or he's just, he knows that if he talks about it, he'll lose money and attention in his platform, which would happen for sure. And so maybe he's just too attached to those things to tell the truth on the topic. But for someone going around saying, tell the truth, tell the truth, tell the truth, and then blatantly lying about the Russians. But it's a certain kind of Russians, right? Or or are you not convinced of that uh, opinion? I mean, it's not all of the Russians, but there's certainly throughout time, you know, if you look at complaints against these Russians from the 20th century, whether it's in Russia, Romania, Germany, Spain, etc. This is the thing, man. Uh, like, the same this, if I would use the correct term, it would be the most controversial thing. But if you have been persecuted in so many countries, in mm-hmm. so many different regimes, so many times, I'm not saying it's all the Russians, but if I rent a house and 2,200 times you get evicted from the house, is it the landlord or is there something <laughs> or a certain percentage of the population who are doing something that, you know, the yeah. landlord just doesn't condone? Like that just is very weird that you get thrown out of yeah. your house so many times and it's always the, the landlord who is the wrong person. It's a very unusual coincidence, isn't it? So there's a lack of self-awareness that I think prevents the persecutions from happening again because... In my experience, when you try to explain to a Russian why Russians have been persecuted, Mm -hmm. all they hear is that you're attacking them. They're not able to process what you're saying. They're not able to look at their own behavior and say, wait a second, am I contributing to this stereotype? Am I contributing to this Mm -hmm. negative perception people have had of Russians for the last 2,000 years? So the only ones that I've ever met that can understand are the ones that have converted to Christianity. Because I think the the acceptance of God illuminates and enlightens you in so many ways. Whereas the rejection of Christ, which is kind of the cornerstone of modern Russianism, let's say, the modern Russian religion is all about based, all based on a rejection of Christ. Well, if you turn your back on God, he gives you over to a reprobate mind. This is what the Bible tells us. He, if you reject him, he just lets evil have its way with you unless and until you come back and repent, right? So I think that the scales over the eyes of these Russians with the unusual hats is uh, a result of their rejection of, of God. Do you know who Dr. E. Michael Jones is? No, no, no. The name rings a little bit of a bell. I, I'm going to send you a link to a book after this interview. It's like a thousand page tome that I think will blow your mind and answer a lot of questions on this topic. Is um, there a link between Freemasonry and the Russians with the funny hats and uh, globalism, <laughs> etc.? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you got a lot of funny hats too. I'm looking at your wall. You know, I have a lot of funny hats. Yeah, they're different hats. Yeah. Yeah, I would say there is a connection in that. The ideology of Freemasonry, which is cabal, that's the philosophy, whether they realize it or not. Most Masons realize it or not. It comes from the Russians with the funny hats, as does communism. That's a, you know, Karl Marx, excuse me, writing poems to Satan and uh, coming up with his philosophy. The Talmud has uh, this idea of tikkun olam, meaning the healing of the world, which really just means communism in practice. So they themselves think that they're making the world a better place, or so they say, without regard or attention paid to the fact that wherever this healing takes place, there's mass starvation, mass killings. You know, we always hear about the atrocities committed by Germany. And I think there were some atrocities committed by Germany. I'm not saying that mm-hmm. that everything they did was great. I would mm-hmm. never say that. There were a lot of atrocities committed by these Russians with the funny hats as well. You know, Genrik Yagoda starved 10 million Ukrainian Christians to death on purpose during the Holodomor genocide. So we, we never hear about that one in the history books though, which I think just goes to show you who's writing the history books and who's choosing the curriculums who has the power here. And uh, Voltaire, the philosopher, who's French, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, yeah, I, I checked said, the documentary of in his entire life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So he said, if you want to know who rules over you, ask who you're not allowed to criticize. 
And I've always found that to be a poignant uh, observation. The fact that we can't even say who we're talking about openly for fear of being persecuted on YouTube or in our personal lives in some way, you know, that goes to show you who's in charge of the yeah, social media. And, and also of course, that, the that, CEO that, of YouTube that, is, of course, a Russian with a funny hat. You can do the Russians with a funny hat test. If you look at CEOs of big companies, just do the Ru mm -hmm. Russians with a funny hat test and, and see if the mm -hmm. CEO is a Russian with a funny hat. And you will see that yep. they're, they're disproportionately prevalent there. When, the when Jordan Peterson is talking about, you know, the, 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 the prevalence of men in like high dominance categories, we're talking about this huge thing that is blatantly obvious, but, but it's such a dogma yep. to talk about. But when I looked at it, like I would say, and this is very conservative, like 20% of the times it's a Russian with a funny hat. And then yeah. only, I don't know, 0.1% of the population. So they're, they're overly represented. It's like, yeah. explain to this why i mean they can have their work ethic they can have a study and good networks i understand but be to be overrepresented so much in all yeah. these big corporations media pharma uh, uh, finance system explain me why that they are so yep. overrepresented question mark yep. and can we just have a debate about it if it would all be white people like you with the beards like what are all these white nationalists ruling all these mm. companies with their patriarchy well, that's then the, we can that's discuss the trick, it. isn't yeah. it yeah that's the trick is a is that they're the ones propagating this white privilege narrative saying look at all these white men in positions of power you're like wait a second well some they, they certainly have white skin like i mm -hmm. i consider myself white and also a russian with a funny hat ethnically because you look very similar in certain ways now, if these Russians had purple skin, I think the truth would be incredibly obvious incredibly quickly, but they propagate this, oh, it's white people that are evil. It's white people, these Europeans that did the slave trade. Okay, well, who owned all the ships and the trade routes, you know? And this should be like a, a no-brainer. We're not saying like, hey, it's like this, it's like this. We're just saying this should be allowed to be discussed. Why are we not allowed to discuss and explore this? Even when you look yep. at the amount of deaths in the 20th century, I can name so many genocides, so many conflicts mm -hmm. that have a lot more deaths and a lot more consequences, but they hijacked the 20th century that it's all about yep. the Russians with a funny hat in the media, mm -hmm. in the books. Mm -hmm. This is the one thing that you can't deny. You can't talk about it. But all the other mm -hmm. genocides, just Armenian genocide, just to name one, yep. Ru yep. Rwanda genocide, no problem at all, or it's not being given attention at all. But this one thing, that's the one thing that you can't touch, like almost the cloak of, how do you call it, that you can't be touched, you know, you can't be attacked, you know, you're impervious yeah, it's, to it's, attacks. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember the last time I drove past an Armenian genocide museum, much <laughs> less saw one in every major city in the country. And the, the interesting thing is if you... And you know, when like, we talk I'm, about I'm Russia with the, uh, the 20th century, yeah, I found it a very Same interesting complaints. thing that Satan has been replaced by Hitler in the 20th century. I mean, I wouldn't say I love the guy, certainly. I think he did a lot of things that were bad. Uh, yeah, yeah. But you're right. Yeah. He is he is the figure that is always toted around as the ultimate embodiment of evil. And in some ways, maybe he was. Mm -hmm. But if you look at what Germany was suffering at the time after World War One, it makes sense why the Germans were angry. I tried to have this conversation with a fellow Russian with a funny hat yesterday. Mm -hmm. It didn't, it went the same way it always goes. Yeah. But if you look through the 20th century nationalist movements, they usually had the same opinion of these Russians. The same exact things you and I are talking about right now, they were talking about 100 years ago in Romania, they're talking about in Germany, Italy, not so much. Italy wasn't like an anti Semitic, their, their fascism was not an anti Semitic thing until Mussolini became a puppet of Hitler in 1938. Mm -hmm. They rescued him from prison, create this little puppet republic, the Salo Republic. And then he starts hating Jews. Oh, I said the, I mean, the Russians, I meant the Russians. <laughs> yeah. 
Before that, Mussolini didn't care at all. You know, there were 10,000 of them in the fascist party, registered members. 200 of them were black shirts that marched on Rome with him when he was made head of state by the king. So, but in other places, you see the same complaints about the media, about the financial institutions, about communism, about censorship. It's the same story every single time. And I think that goes to show that they're, they're not learning as a group and then doing the exact behavior that causes persecution everywhere that they go, which is really sad for me to watch because, you know, yes, these sir. are my, the, my the main thing is know? the corruption of culture. And when you will look at yes. the corruption of culture, you want to take a look yes. at the figureheads that determine behavior and perception of society, which you often end up with the media, the financial yes. system, politics, uh, pharma even. And then just do your mm -hmm. own research. Do this test yeah. that I just told you and yeah. look up Pfizer who, CEO. who determines the policy. Just do the test. I mean, I'm not going to tell you what conclusion to make. Just do the test yourself. And then you will yeah. insanely disproportionately end up with the same thing that you see every time and then you We're look at the corruption of culture and then you see the link somewhere so i'm not saying you know, i just want to understand why you'd be able to talk about this but this is the same thing it's not a justification it's an explanation what happened in world war ii yeah. there was a massive corruption of culture and a massive debt to the financial yeah. system after world war one problem is that the ones that are involved in that stuff bring down pain and punishment on the ones that are, have nothing to do with it. A lot of these Russians with funny hats are just like peasants. They're poor people. They're not doing anything yeah. wrong. But when the bad ones in, in the positions of power cause problems, well, those peasants get rounded up and killed or expelled from the country too, even though they had nothing to do with it. So I part of why I do what I do and try to talk about this stuff is to make more of them aware of, of how they're being perceived by others and stop doing the behavior that brings that backlash on everybody. You know, I, I, I would never support the pain, the punishment of innocent people. You know, I was accused yeah. of that yesterday of being a Hitler worshiper who wanted to genocide. I was like, mm -hmm. I've never said that. I don't believe that you're making this up, putting these words in my mouth, but everyone gets punished for the crimes of the ones that are doing these things. Um, like, I don't know if you just saw this new uh, anti-Christian quote Christmas movie that Seth Rogen and Sarah Silverman put out. It's just this vicious attack against Christians. And so, you know, they're both Russians with funny hats. So they got a lot of backlash from people that are waking up to this problem. And then they have the lowest rating now on IMDb of any TV show of all time for this show. And they're whining about anti-Russianism. Oh, look at this evil backlash from white supremacists. No awareness whatsoever that their relentless attack of whites and of Christianity makes people not like them. Like they can't make the connection between their behavior and the backlash. And it's that gap that I think can only be bridged by Christ and by waking up to how things really work, you know, having the scales fall from your eyes. But I'll tell you, it is very thankless, dirty work trying to wake these Russians up. I know. And I have some talks about this and some, some make sense. And I know, you know, we're talking about a certain percentage of them. I mean, other people mm -hmm. call them Qatars or other kind of Russians mm -hmm. with a funny hat. But some people say that the, purpose is that they want to start this apocalypse they want to start this mm -hmm. conflict that uh, they can become the ultimate survivor and they can raise the temple of salomon again yeah i mean they do they want to rule the world that's largely what communism is is this centralization of money and of power and it's interesting because they're the messiah that they think they're cultivating is the antichrist i mean it's the same figure described in the book of uh revelation i'm sorry not revelation yeah, in Revelation, this is in the Old Testament the that, that the Messiah between brackets will come again. And that's why there first has to be conflict. And that's why some people actually are very looking forward to conflict yes. because that signals that the Messiah will yes. come back. 
Yeah, so the the Messiah these Russians are waiting for is like a warlord, basically. And they couldn't accept, I mean, some many of them did accept Christ when he came. They didn't want to accept that they're that the true Messiah was this, you know, blue-collar guy that was not preaching warlord and power to the Jew, uh, to the Russians. Oh, almost left there. You know, he was preaching peace and repentance of the heart and faith and love and charity. That's not what a lot of them wanted. They wanted, here's the guy that's going to protect your people, give you your own country, and help you rule the world so no one else can persecute you. But if you look at the description of who they're waiting for, for us, it's the Antichrist. It's the false man of peace who rules the world and pretends to be a good guy that's just out there, to, just here to help out, right? That's always how Satan is. He's always just here to help you. But then the truth comes out that he's actually filled with the power of Satan, right? It's not going to be Satan himself. It's going to be a, a man filled with the power of Satan. And I mean, it's, it's also what Jesus eventually. did, right? He was like, uh, you have this image of this very peaceful, hippy-dippy uh, Christ, but he was very angry in the temple when he chased them away because, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of symbolic yeah. for the, the fighting against the financial system that enslaves people. You could certainly argue that. And yes, he came back as a, a peaceful man preaching peace and love and repentance. And it's the same at the same time, when he comes back, the scythe of death is going to come for all those that rejected him. And that lived in filth and that fought against him. So he is he is a man of peace and also a man of war. You know, it's the same God from the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the same, you know, like you said, hippy dippy loving Jesus that was going around, you know, saying, Hey, don't stone the adulteress. He's also the one that's going to come back and destroy the wicked later. How do you and reconcile the Old us, Testament hey, and the New Testament? Well, they're testaments of the same God. Because for me, that was my break with God when I found mm. like a discrepancy between the Old Testament, which seems a very angry and, and vengeful God. Mm. And then you had the New Testament, which God almost speaks no word in the New Testament. You know, it's mostly about the story of Jesus, like the, the language of God or directly speaking is almost none in the New mm. Testament. And it was more a forgiving, loving God. So for me, they tried to reconcile it, both of the Testaments. But for me, that was a change in God and mm -hmm. the narrative there, at least for me, even at a young age. Right. No, I, I understand because I went through the same exact thing when I was converting. And then I discovered that there was actually a second century. So we're talking about almost 2000 years ago, a group called the Marcionites led by a guy called Marcion. And this, what you just described to me was exactly what Marcion said. So he wanted to take out of the New Testament, all the parts where the apostles quote from the Old Testament to prove Christ, because he could not gr believe that these were testaments of the same God. How could this be the same religion? You know, he has to chop up the New Testament to make it fit better. But when you read the Old Testament properly through the exegesis or interpretation of the apostles and their students and what we call the church fathers or the saints throughout time, they are the same. And the what appears as a discrepancy at first is a usually, and I'm not saying this to insult you in any way, because again, I believe the same thing. It's usually a lack of proper understanding of what something means. So I'll give you a perfect example. When I was becoming a Christian, I couldn't get past the idea of the genocide of the Canaanites in the book of Joshua, right? How could this loving God wipe out all these innocent people? They were just, just because God promised the, the Russians of the Old Testament, they were going to have this land to themselves. So they just killed everyone that was there. Like, isn't that or evil? Or Job was for me also a big, uh, big Sure, sure. But well, we can get to that in a second. But then when I understood, and there's a great podcast episode that I recommend called uh, Land of Giants on a podcast called Lord of Spirits. I don't love one of the priests involved in that podcast. That's a separate story. So the Lord of Spirits podcast episode called The Land of Giants. I think you should, everyone should listen to it. The Canaanites that Joshua and his army wiped out were remnants of the Nephilim. They were, Nephil they were giant tribes. 
They were cannibals. They were brutal. They were the, the remnants of the people that the flood had wiped out the first time, the offspring of demons and human women. So it's not that they just went and genocided all of these innocent people to get the land. This was basically the flood, but by the sword of Joshua and his army, wiping out these wicked giant tribes. And the crazy thing is, even, even secular non-Christian archaeologists will tell you the tombs they found in this area are enormous. They're giant-sized tombs from thousands of years ago. These are not tombs for normal human beings. I mean, these yeah, things like there was more oxygen in the air, and that's one of the things why these dinosaurs were so big because they had more oxygen, so then they were bigger. So, I mean, it's a question mark, right? That giants existed or people were bigger back then because there was more oxygen in the air or the, the ecosystem well, of the earth was different. I think if you, I think, and it may have been, but I think if you look at these megalith tombs, I don't think the difference in size can be accounted for by just more oxygen in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. It's like a three hour podcast, but I think it'll clear stuff up. But the point being that that kind of thing, and a lot of the Old Testament, there's a symbolic and a moral meaning to it as well as a historical one, that if you're just reading it without those extra layers, it can seem, and I totally acknowledge that it can seem like a totally different religion. But one is the fulfillment, excuse me, the new is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But Christ himself said not one letter of the Old Testament will pass away because that's a testament to him. When understood properly, and this is kind of the danger, one of the many dangers of being a Protestant is you don't have this proper interpretation of these things. I mean, they can they can make passes at it and get some things correct, of course, and they do. I mean, I, I'm indebted to my old Protestant church for all the amazing things that I was taught there and learned to love God and the Bible. Like, I still love those people. But at a certain point, if you don't have the interpretations of the Bible by the saints, the holiest people that have ever lived, you know, you're missing something. You can't just sit alone in your room with a Bible and come up with the proper interpretation most of the time, which is kind of the presupposition of Protestantism is that the Holy Spirit will tell me what the Bible means. Okay, but again, if that were true, why are there 40,000 denominations, right? Something How did is going you, on here. I mean, it's kind of schizophrenic and it must be a battle of the soul, but you being a Russian with a funny hat and then becoming a Protestant and now an Orthodox, so, and then seeing yourself as a sinful creature. How was this journey for you to go through these stages honestly it was awesome like when i read paul talking about i mean i read paul and peter in the scriptures talking about this exact same thing they were they were the same they were russians with funny hats that when the messiah came they at least in paul's case he stopped persecuting the church he stopped being an evil guy we don't know too much about peter beforehand besides that he was a fisherman but paul was a, a great sinner right one of the most learned pharisees a, a great status in the russian with funny hat world of the ancient world and they went through the same thing. And if you read what they're saying, you know, not all of Israel or Abraham's seed, Paul said the exact same thing I'm saying. Like, I was one of this group of people. I have found the true God. And not everyone of this bloodline is a child of God just because they were chosen, just because their bloodline was preserved by God in the Old Testament. Now we, we have to follow the true God in his new form that we've seen, this incarnation as a man, because that's what makes you a real child of God, is following God, who is now this guy, right? Well, not now, he always was, but now we see him in front of us, walking around in a body, whereas before we could have visions of him or he would appear sometimes as a character called the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, but he wasn't in a physical body in the Old Testament the way he is now. And so I don't see any difference between what I'm doing and saying and what Paul was doing and saying. I mean, obviously he was much more effective evangelist than I am, right? Change the face of human history. I see myself as having walked the, the full path now. You know, I don't even call, I, saw, I, I do call myself a convert for the sake of convenience, but it's really a fulfillment. Like I grew up in this Russian religion 
and then when Christ entered my life, fulfilled it and taught me what all that old stuff was actually leading up to. So I see it kind of like, I think God prepared the world for the incarnation differently for the Russians and the Gentiles, right? The Gentiles had their Greco-Roman religions, they had their pagan religions, the Russians had their Old Testament, and Christ came and fulfilled both and brought these worlds together when St. John says in his book that the Logos became flesh, right? Logos is a Greek philosophical word. It's the, the order, the rationality, the principle that orders the universe to the Greek pagans. So he's bringing together Greek philosophy and Hebrew theology is what John does and said, hey, this meeting of Greek philosophy and Hebrew theology is this man, Jesus Christ, who is the son of God, who is God. So Christ brought together all these disparate philosophies and fulfilled them in a way that the whole world could have its preparation fulfilled by. So, I mean, it was, it, I'm not saying it was like an overnight thing, obviously. I mean, there's dealing with telling your family, oh, by the way, I'm becoming Christian, which, you know, Russians don't like to hear necessarily. They've accepted it now, though, of course, and they're happy for me. But, you know, it what's was your worth opinion? It. This is very thought provoking, but it's interesting because, yeah, like in mm -hmm. both, what's your opinion about circumcision? God willing, my wife and I will have kids, and God willing, one or more of them will be sons, and we will not be circumcising them. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, because I also have my own opinion about it, but that's very interesting that uh, you say that because I often have, if, if I ever have this discussion with someone who's circumcised that a Russian with a funny mm. hat, they just like completely mm. are triggered and I can't yeah. have a sensible debate on why they would sacrifice blood in a blood ritual for something that is the God-given body and then you have to yeah. sacrifice that part. That I was always well, intrigued the why, yeah. The spiritual meaning of circumcision is to cut away what is useless in our own hearts and minds, right? Mm. So there was a literal circumcision taking place in the Old Testament era, and the Christian interpretation of it, really, it was symbolic of baptism. It was the, like I was saying, the, the cutting away, the, the cutting away of the old and becoming a new creature. Like, that's our spiritual circumcision, is our baptism. And so... It's a, it's a purification, but an inner one, right? That's the problem with the Pharisees and the, the Russians is all, it's all external rituals, but there's no inner change. There's no inner transfiguration that goes with it, which was the point of all those things, right? And the Russians that did understand that in the Old Testament, the prophets were persecuted and killed by the ones that didn't get it, just like they did to Christ, right? He was, he means the ultimate prophet, right? And they did the same thing to him they did to the other prophets, right? They, they martyred him. Uh, that's, that's the common pattern is that someone comes along and says, hey, all this external ritual you're doing doesn't mean anything to God. It's about a change in your heart. It's about changing your life, transforming who you are at the deepest level. That's what God cares about. And the people very attached to the rituals, they don't want to hear that because then they think, oh, well, then all, all the actions I've been doing are worthless. And that makes them feel bad. So they just kill the messenger. Some pay attention to the message, but each time they've killed the messenger. Well, the power of rituals, this is what I also want to end the podcast a bit when it comes to masonry and stuff. Is there sure. inherent power in these rituals of, and I'm also curious about the rituals you have to do, dressing in robes. I mean, we can often talk about mm -hmm. child sacrifice, blood rituals, mm -hmm. chanting, incantations. Is it all just belief and belief becomes reality? Or is there inherent, even if it's dark, power in indulging in that behavior and rituals? I would agree with the last thing you said. I think a lot of occult people convince themselves that it's all just a belief, right? Like the chaos magic people that, you know, just construct whatever ritual works for you. It's all about, it's all about what's happening in your mind, not what's happening outside of you is what they would say. No, I think there is inherent power, power in rituals. I mean, a ritual or a, a mystery, something that bridges the earthly and heavenly realms. Like not everything in the heavenly realm is good though, right? We know the, the power of the prince of the air, the air is the realm of demons. So when you do a ritual, 
or some kind of mystery school that yokes you to a demon, of course that's powerful. I mean, you're bridging the gap between the visible and the invisible world. But like you said, not all of that is good. There's a lot of dark ways of doing that too. So for us, our sacraments, confession, marriage, baptism, chrismation, and the Eucharist most of all, these are, are bridging a wall or bridging a gap between us and God, the highest power, right? But the mystery schools and the Masons and the Golden Dawn people, they're, they're stopping at the level of the air. They're not going all the way up. And so they're just being corrupted by these rituals. And I'm sure they do feel powerful because obviously these are powerful spirits. These are real spirit. They're demons. They're fallen angels. So why would they not have power? But it's not power that helps you or heals you. It's power that might make you feel better than everyone else, right? It always inflates pride. That's always a good sign of whether you know, your mystery thing is really making you a humble person. It always inflates pride. You feel better than everyone else because you have this special knowledge, special insight, and all the mundane plebeians don't know all the great things you know. Well, this is the thing that I'm wondering. Not I'm, I'm not a Freemason, so I have no idea of the rituals, but how does this work and what is the trade you have to do? Do you have to tell a secret to people? Do you have to admit something to everyone so they can blackmail you and what are some practices or things that they do i mean you have the as a bohemian grove bohemian grove and other stuff like that that is sometimes what i think about freemasonry could you give me some practical example or practices that you maybe know Mm. of or witnessed like because it still seems such a mystery like who are these people what do they do what are these practices yeah. that they do and what are the kind of bonds that they make it it, it still is so much in the shadows and mysterious yeah. that a lot of people wondering like is it just a kind of fraternity of powerful people doing some rituals and then blackmailing each other and then getting more power money and influence or how does it work practically So I can only speak from knowledge on things that I directly saw and experienced, right? So no, I did not get blackmailed. I was not forced to do something immoral or anything like that. I have no doubt that there are groups that do, that they'll, I mean, that's what Epstein's whole island was, right? Videotaping the rich and powerful committing crimes to blackmail them. It's a a Russian spy network, let's say, and I'll leave it at that. Mm -hmm. But that's, I mean, that's how they control the rich and powerful, the influencers. The Masonic rituals are like a play like a drama. So there's scripted lines and movements and you have to do all the right movements and the different characters say different things representing different ideas. But you do swear an oath on your the holy book of your choosing. And you were uh, you picked, out, very, picked out? Picked no. out as a mason? You looked it up? You I, Yeah, I, I sought it out myself, yeah. But the, the rituals include parts where you swear to keep all the secrets of the fraternity on pain of a very violent death. And each degree, uh, each ritual has a different description of how you're gonna you're gonna be killed if you reveal the secrets. So people will act like it's just this big fraternity, like, oh, it just makes good men better, you know. Okay, well, why do you need secret rituals and death vows for that? You know, obviously there's something there. And I think depending on who you are and your station in life, maybe it's different. You know, maybe if I was a rich and powerful diplomat or businessman, maybe they would have pulled me aside to a group that does have something a little more serious. But you know, I was just some hippie. You know, the first time I walked into a lodge, I had a Greenpeace shirt on because I just came from work <laughs> and that's what I was doing with my life back then. Like, the, what are they going to do? Offer me some powerful station? Of course not. I was nobody, right? But for the, you know, the heavy hitters, you know, there are groups within masonry, like the gestures, for example, it's a subsection of the Shriners that is for the rich and influential. And they've been caught, you know, shipping prostitutes across state lines. You know, their necklace that they wear is this little evil deity of mischief, this little mischievous monkey creature that they... uh worship, for lack of a better phrase, the spirit that guides them. So I think it depends on your station. So when people say, oh, all Masons have to kill a family member to join, like that's complete nonsense. 
Maybe some do. I can't speak to that. I, I wasn't there for that. I never saw that. So I wish I could give a better answer, but the best answer is it depends on who you are and what group you're in. And the pentagram and the snake mm. and all these symbols, they play like an... Into- full of symbols. Full of symbolism? like like Many symbols. Why is the symbolism so important? And why is this... If it's so important for the, the negative, why is the symbolism not used in the good? Well, symbols are used for good in the Christian world. But again, the ecologist takes good things and turns them upside down. I mean, the whole thing is full of symbolism and people spend their whole lives studying the symbolism of Freemasonry. That's what hooked me. I was totally hooked on this. You know, when I was in the Scottish Rite, I joined the Master Craftsman Program, which is largely- This was the book, the Albert, Pike, of the, Albert Pike, Models and Dogma. Yeah, that was yeah the I've read, book. read the whole thing. So I, when I wrote my book on the Masons and their lies, I read all of Morals and Dogma. It's like 951 pages or some obscene thing because I was quoting from it constantly in my book to point out why it's not a Christian organization and how the thoughts of Pike and Buck and Manley Hall don't align with Christian theology and belief. But yeah, that's, and he has a book called Esoterica. That's a study of the specific symbols and words and codes. I mean, no one really knows what masonry is or where it came from. That's kind of the grand irony. Like you join and then a lot of people just devote their lives trying to figure out where it came from. And that's part of the fascination. And I say that in a bad way, like Satan is fascinating people, captivating their minds. Ooh, study this symbol, go down this rabbit hole, go down this rabbit hole. Okay, great. But what are you learning from this? Nothing. It's just keeping you away from the true God, from focusing on your sins and your repentance and your healing and your transfiguration and someday God willing glorification, becoming a saint yourself. It's all just a big distraction. So I think of all the symbolism in masonry as like a chew toy for intelligent people. Like it's just something to gnaw, like mm, something to keep yourself busy with. But they're telling you it's interesting and wow, mysterious and isn't this cool? Don't you want to learn more about this? But it's just garbage at the end of the day. Well, I know you quit Facebook two years ago. You're now on YouTube. I did, Um, yeah. What is your relationship with social media and the entertainment industry and with the coming of the metaverse? Are you just basically just uh, devoting yourself to God and expect a kind of apocalypse to happen and then Christ will come back? Or what is your opinion? I'm totally... unplugged from facebook metaverse i don't care i've 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 never even read an article or watched a video about the metaverse i mean i've heard the word a few times i get the general idea my level of indifference is so high that i haven't even followed up with it like it doesn't matter i use social media mainly to do this to evangelize for orthodoxy to have these kinds of conversations with people that are interesting and interested and you know, exchanging ideas and learning and growing. But I don't, I used to use social media. I mean, I was a copywriter, professional copywriter. Yeah, yeah. I had to have my suit on and my profile picture, always talking about money and business. And I just hated it. I hated it so much after a couple of years that I just stopped doing it. So I just, I use social media to glorify God as best as I can. And I fail in countless ways every single day. But I do the best I can, and I see it as an evangelization tool, essentially. I don't care about keeping up with virtual reality technology. I mean, I'm not going to turn into some battery like the Matrix where I'm just some you know, plugged-in guy just drugged up on his whatever it is they, they shield to people, taking their COVID medicine all day and just plugged in while your life corrodes around you. Like Ready Player One, I think it was another movie where everyone's just plugged into their video game universe all day. I mean, I haven't even touched a video game in two months almost. I just... Maybe I will again when something good comes out, but I just try to interact carefully is the short version of my answer. How do I interact with social media carefully? I try not to let it corrupt me because Facebook, Twitter, it just brings out the worst in people and it's just dark and dirty. And even the good that's there, I think, is largely eclipsed by the bad. So I have to be careful with what 
I expose myself to. Yeah, I often digitally. see this as um, transhumanism is like a kind of going back to the Garden of Eden and trying to be totally. like God. I want to become eternal, yep. transhuman, and I want to define yep. what's right and wrong by the algorithm, aka define morals as what God is trying yep. to impose, right? And then all in exchange agree. for almost a Faustian deal, like I'm going to give up my humanity and in exchange I have endless options and I have mm-hmm. convenience and it, you know, I you totally come back agree. from a bad trip, but people are, it's alluring, you know, it's the, the, the uh, tower of Babylon, you know, Babylon, I think was also like a library, you know, and technology mm-hmm. getting closer to God. And then in the end, you know, <laughs> you come back from, from an empty trip, but people seem to be. No box of Pandora. Oh, what's this? That's nice. Curiosity. Yeah. Keep on, keep on wanting to chase the curiosity, even though it's the ungodlike or unhuman. But I still want to satiate that yeah. curiosity and try it out. Like right now, we know with all the options, more options is not making people happier. More social media is no. not making people happier. But this carrot no. of temptation keeps on being dangled in front of people. Like, I do you know. want more people of this? Are, they're so miserable. And I don't know why they keep doing more of what's making them miserable. No, I have no interest in being part robot or hooking my brain up to an AI. Or I mean, I don't, I don't need it. I don't desire it. Isn't it such a grand irony that these people want to live forever and yet they turn down eternal life in Christ, which is the only way to actually live forever, right? They want to make themselves a robot or hook themselves up to a computer instead. And it's a total Faustian bargain. I mean, you give up the part of you that makes you human, like you just said, just to become, and, it, and it's a lie anyway. There's never going to be some AI that lets you live forever. It's just never going to happen. But they're certainly going to spend all their time and money trying to do it. How do you properly repent? Well, for the Orthodox, we have what's called the Jesus Prayer, which is very simple. It says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We say it. I mean, we should be saying it all day, frankly. I mean, I've been holding my prayer rope throughout this whole interview. So usually we'll say it while like circling around the rope, kind of like what Catholics do with a rosary. You know, you might do some prayers to the Theotokos, the mother of God as well with your prayer rope. But really the best way is to just meditate on your own selfishness until you're crying tears of contrition at your own evil. I think tears are a great gift of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing more healing. It's almost like another baptism is how I usually conceive of it, Mm. like a washing, a cleansing. And then of course, it's not enough to just feel that. I mean, you have to try your best to change as well with God's help. But for us, repentance is not just saying, okay, like I don't believe in what I've seen of the Roman Catholic quote unquote version of confession. Like, oh, I did something bad. Okay, here's your punishment. Go do 10 Hail Marys. I'll see you again next week. Like for us, it's not a legal transaction like that. The church is not a courtroom for us. It's a hospital. So for us, repentance is saying, God, here is a wound I have. It's not that I did a bad thing. It's here's a deep wound I have that's causing me to behave in a way I don't like. Please heal me, right? We go to confession. We get absolution from our priest. He gives us spiritual guidance, spiritual wisdom. And we do our best to live in accordance with that. And then over time, I mean, this is a lifelong process we're talking about. It's, we don't believe it's like a light switch where you just one day you're an evil sinner, next day you're saved because you said the, the sinner's prayer if you're a certain kind of Protestant. Maybe that's the beginning. It's a great start, you know, that orig- initial conversion, but that's the beginning. It's a lifelong process of purification and sanctification and illumination and becoming more and more Christ-like as we overcome our passions and as we try to have our roots in heaven more than in our own dirty hearts or in our money or in our possessions, in our material ambitions, and it takes a lifetime. You know, some people are just born in a very saintly way. You know, we have saints that kind of never did anything really too wrong. Frankly, that's certainly not the path I'm on. You know, my patron Saint Augustine of Hippo was a, a great materialist. He was a womanizer. He was a lawyer. He loved money. He taught rhetoric, and then he became 
uh, Christian and changed the course of the Western world uh, once he repented. So it's different for everyone, but it's you have to be serious about it. You have to just want it more than anything else. And you have to be willing to face just how dark you are so that God can heal you. You know, He's not going to show you that and leave you hanging. He shows you it so you can bring it to him. It's like any doctor, you have to know what your symptoms are to be healed, right? If you go to a doctor and say, heal me, the doctor says, what's wrong? You say, I don't know. Say, why are you wasting my time? You go to the doctor, you say, he, hey, I'm struggling with X, Y, and Z. My elbow hurts. This wound is bleeding. Then he can give you a prescription to heal you. And that's what a good priest will do. They will hear what your wounds are and then give you the medicine that's meant to heal that particular wound. It's not a legal transaction of, I did X sin, I say Y number of Hail Marys. There might be Marian prayers involved in your healing. I mean, we're supposed to be asking for the prayers of the mother of God all the time. You know, she's right there with God. She's a glorified saint. She did something no other human being has ever done. She gave birth to God in bodily form. No one else has ever done that or ever will do that. So her prayers are very powerful. I wish I could give you a shorter answer, but the Orthodox are not prone to short answers and simple solutions. You know, it's a whole lifestyle. How do we repent is by changing our whole lifestyle is the, the shortest and best answer that I can give. If people want to check out more about uh, the book that you've written and your YouTube channel or a website mm -hmm. or blog that you have, why can they check out more about your material and uh, teachings? So I'm on Gab, Telegram, and YouTube as Brother Augustine. And my two books on the Masons and their lies, which is the bestseller, and Theopoetica, which is a book of classical Christian poetry, along with essays on the topic of poetry and an explanation of each poem and how I come up with it and why I wrote it the way I did. Those are on Amazon in Kindle and paperback. On the Masons and their lies is available in audio form as well. And if people want a signed paperback copy, they can email me at brotheraugustine1, the number one, at gmail.com. And they email me, I'll tell them where to send the money, and then I'll sign the book and mail it out to them. And yeah, I'll send you the links for all that stuff too, so you can just pop them in the description box. For anybody who's wrestling with uh, their sins or religion and they want to start the quest, whether it be uh, orthodoxy, Protestantism, Catholicism, obviously mm -hmm. you choose uh, orthodoxy now. What's the best place to, to start? Should they get the King James Bible, St. Jerome Bible? Should they just visit their church? What are some entry portals towards the religious instinct and mm. following that Holy Spirit and following so that? I, I would actually not start with the Bible, and here's mm. why. Reading the Bible on your own without understanding where it came from and without a guide to show you what things mean can be very dangerous. The moral teachings, of course, are applicable for everyone. But the deeper theological, ecclesiastical stuff is not really there to be invented on our own. We want to do our best to do what the apostles taught, which has been recorded and passed down throughout time in the Orthodox Church. So obviously, you want to read the Bible every day, but it's also important to read it correctly. So I would start with two resources. There's a book by Father Josiah Trenum called Rock and Sand. I would start with Rock and Sand. If you're more of a watcher than a reader, there's a video series called Finding the Church Jesus Built on a channel called Orthodox Christianity 101. It's eight or nine videos. They're like an hour and a half long each. It's a, it's a significant amount of work. However, you'll learn more by the end of the first video in that series than you've probably ever learned about the history of Christianity in your life up until the point you watch it. And by the time you get to the first one, you're going to want to watch all of them. And what these videos do is lay out, the videos and the book lay out the history of the Christian church from the beginning to the present day. Mm. You know, what stayed true, what branched off, in what ways they branched off. You know, it's hard to put in words just how, how far these things will take you. Once you've done those things, 
I, of course, would encourage you to attend an Orthodox church, go to a Vesper service Saturday night, go to, to a Divine Liturgy Sunday morning to actually step into this ancient faith because it hasn't changed. Step into this ancient Byzantine world of an Orthodox church and see what the first Christians did. You know, all the earliest house churches, Protestants had this idea it was a bunch of guys sitting around doing a Bible study in someone's living room. But if you look at the buildings, they're, they're actually built to be little churches. They're liturgical. They were services because Christianity came out of Second Temple Judaism. This, the worship was liturgical. You know, it was ritualistic, for lack of a better phrase. And a lot of people who think that's not the case, I point you to Acts, I want to say 3 1, if I'm remembering the verse correctly, where Peter and John, this is after Christ, mind you, go up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. They were doing liturgical structured worship, just like the Orthodox still do and have been doing. It wasn't just, I mean, you want to pray all the time anyway, but it wasn't just whenever you feel like it, pray whatever prayer. Like, there's a reason God gave us, okay, at this hour of the day, here's the kind of service you want to do. At this hour of the day, this is the kind of service you want to do. We do this and it's passed down because it works. We know that this creates saints. You know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to figure out what a verse means. We can look at 2,000 years of our saints talking about it and they almost always agree on what something means. Not all the time, but very often they agree. What's called a patristic consensus, the consensus of the church fathers. What did they think this meant? People that are much wiser and holier than we are. We have to have the humility to recognize that and not think that we're some special prophet, some new called apostle that's meant to change Christianity, like what Joseph Smith did with Mormonism, like claiming that God, the Father and Son, appeared to him in bodily form, told him all the churches are corrupt, and he's meant to restore the ancient rites. Like, forgive me if you're a Mormon listening, but this is nonsense. Like, this is just not true. If you actually read through the history of the church, it never went anywhere. Christ said the gates of hell would not overcome the church. So to be a Mormon means to call Christ a liar. You're saying that hell overcame the church for 1,800 years until Joseph Smith restored it? Well, that's not what Christ promised. He said, I will be with you even to the end of the age. This is the rock on which I shall build my church and the gates of hell shall not overcome it. So one of those things has to be true. I'm going to side with Christ and not Joseph Smith on that question. The very last thing, because I'm just curious about it. Do you think there's value towards the revelations and the mark of the beast and all those things and that symbolism? Because you just talked before that 700, 800 years, it wasn't like being... Yeah taking us part of the canon in a... So it's the only book of the Bible that's never read in an Orthodox service. Everything mm. else is read in services. However, we have lots of commentary on it from saints and elders and monks and whatnot, but it's very complicated. I don't spend a ton of time on it because it's kind of beyond my pay grade, you know? Mm. What, what the end times are going to look like, I think I'll know when we're there, you know, when it's when Christ appears to everyone at the same time from heaven, like we'll know. So I, I find that it's healthier and wiser to just focus on what I have to do today. What do I have to repent for today? You know, how can I make my relationship with my wife and, and my church and God better today? You know, I have plenty to keep me busy recognizing my own sins, asking forgiveness and trying to be a better person without worrying about the specifics of what the end times are going to look like. That said, we're being told right now by the TV, you have to get this certain thing or else you can't buy or sell. Well, Revelation does mention not not being part of that, right? So you want to have at least some awareness of what's happening. But overall, I don't spend a lot of time on it. I haven't studied it enough to give an educated opinion on it. Well, thanks for your revelations in this podcast. And I wish you the best in uh, spreading your message and uh, enlightening people and bringing the Holy Spirit to people. Thanks for uh, being a guest on my podcast, Michael. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for inviting me. I had a great time. You know, it's not, not every day you can talk to people about this kind of thing. So I appreciate that as well. 
you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and support our mission of freedom of speech. With increasing restrictions on fundamental freedoms, we believe that now, more than ever, is the time for you to be an online coach or consultant and become independent from the system. That's why we created the Client Closer Academy. Learn how to consistently enroll clients and join a community of fellow free thinkers who value personal responsibility, speaking their truth, and making an impact. Find out more at clientcloser.com slash academy. Rant over.